Park Hill, hello. Hi, San Diego. It's lovely to be here. Um, I hail from Portland, Oregon, and um, it's good to be down here where I thought there'd be a little more sun. We'll work on it. It's okay. Colossians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, uh, grab one, and I think um, it'll be on the screens. I love that y'all are in Colossians, and I can't wait to explore a little bit of this book with you. We're just going to really look at one verse, at one uh, part of, of Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And I'm going to just go ahead and read it. Let's get situated here. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then um, I just want you to posture yourself in a, in a place where you can hear this word from God. Uh, it's a good reminder, this book is not just a book, it's a living word. And if we listen to this today, if we really hear it, it has the potential to leave us different than if we would have never heard it before. And so posture yourself accordingly. Colossians chapter 2, we'll just read verse 8. Um, well, oh, I have the context up here. Let's just read this larger section. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here's the verse, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the full, whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a word upon our lives as Christians and non-Christians. If we find ourselves to be not a Christian today and we wandered in here today, this is a word. This is something spoken to us for us. Oh man, Lord, it's kind of spoken against us in some ways, this conviction. And so may your Holy Spirit gently lead us to the likeness of your son Jesus through this word. Help me, God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Um, well, it is good to be here. I'm here with my wife and son. Allie and I have been married for 12 and a half years. We have a young son named Jude. He's three. And um, it's really, really good to be here. And I've heard so much about your church when Evan and I were in seminary together. I was just telling Evan earlier today, this community was a maybe idea. And to see the Lord gather his people here today and to see the initiative you guys are in this year about thinking God's thoughts, about the mind of Christ, um, the possibilities are endless. I was praying for you this week and I was thinking about the potential of a community like yours. The potential of a community that would sit and just consider how to love God with all of their mind and how to love God with all of their heart and soul. You're a connected being. And so I just want to drop in here for one week. I was grateful to be invited and I want to almost just kind of push you a little bit and just like you're headed in the right direction. Let me just push you with this one verse from Colossians 2. But to set the context, I want to tell you about an experience I've had and maybe you have had through the last three years. Um, and we, we say the last three years because 2020 was a real year. And uh, tell me if you've had this experience before. One of these three scenarios. The first scenario is this. A family member of yours 
or a yeah, relative or a close friend, suddenly around 2020, 2021, roughly, started posting bizarre and extreme things on social media seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, your uncle that was peaceable at family dinners suddenly on Facebook, and it was usually Facebook, started to post things of extreme nature politically or religiously or something like that. That's scenario number one. Maybe it was just me. <laughs> scenario number two, talking with somebody or texting or DMing, and suddenly this person that you're in conversation with begins to repeat catchphrases that you know they didn't make up. Catchphrases, they start talking about the woke elite or MAGA or something like that or, you know, Trump voters and they use these catchphrases that you think they never used those before. And suddenly they're repeating these phrases that you know they got from maybe blogs and podcasts and other social media sites. Again, just me? I don't know. Third, maybe you're talking with somebody, this happened to me, has happened to me a lot, and they're expressing their opinion about something, and maybe they're a Christian or not a Christian, and the ways in which they're expressing their opinion, they stop, and they just tell you, uh, okay, I don't really know how to explain this, you just gotta go watch this documentary. You gotta go see this video. Listen to this podcast. And you're like, I have to do that, why can't you just tell me what you think? You can't just tell me what you think. You have to show me a document. I got to go on Netflix and spend an hour and a half to just know what you think. Again, is this just me? Are you with me? Have you had one of these three scenarios happen? This is what I call ideological captivity. This idea that our minds can be overthrown, can be shipwrecked and taken and possessed and I got this really from this verse, Colossians 2. Again, if you have your Bible open, Colossians 2 verse 8 starts by saying, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies. I have had this experience throughout 2020 and 2021 and 2022, and it still is going, of people whose minds are captive by philosophy. Man, part of our world and our culture in the church and outside of the church reminds me of Proverbs 18.2. It says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. We live in a foolish time. And what I started to realize was that I was being tempted as a pastor, being tempted to express my opinion without seeking wisdom and understanding. And I started to be tempted by what was on my phone versus what was in scripture. And right as I'm doing this, I was rereading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a spy, a political spy, in 1940s Germany. If you know literally anything about world history, uh, Germany in the 1940s under the Nazi regime. He was resisting the Nazi regime and he was put in prison and he wrote a collection of writings. He wrote novels, he wrote plays, he wrote sermons, he wrote theological treatises, and they're all collected in this book. And the, the book begins with one of his essays called Ten Years After. And he's just exploring how did we get here? And, and here was 1944, which was ten years after the rise of Hitler. 
And he was just contemplating, and, and it's not a real for, fully formed essay, but he's just, he's taking as a pastor, as a theologian, he's trying to discover how did we get to this place where I as a pastor am being imprisoned for trying to protect fellow image bearers? Like, how did we get here 10 years later? And he takes multiple stabs at it, but one of the things he says is he says, I don't think that we so much got to this place in German society because of evil. Evil was certainly at work, but he says he thinks it was secondary to something all the more powerful, foolishness. He said, as much as evil can do, it can only be permitted so long as fools permit it. So long as people are taken captive, in some ways his argument was this, a fool is worse than a villain. Worse than the evildoer at the top of the power structures are the millions of fools beneath him that find his behavior commonplace. That just considers that, oh, this is the way it should be, and coming to be taken captive. And he said when he would talk in German society with fellow Germans, he said he had this experience a lot. And I read this and I thought, I had this experience. Look at these quotes from Bonhoeffer. He says, one feels when talking to this person that one is dealing not with the man himself, but with slogans, catchwords, and the like. This is written in 1944, which have taken hold of him. He's under a spell. He's a passive instrument capable of any evil, and at the same time, incapable of seeing that it is evil. Now, these are lovely quotes and interesting things to think about. And I noticed when I started to read that, I would often think about what was out there. I would think about, oh, all the fools out there, all the people that are, you know, um, foolishly under ideological captivity out there. And it was at that moment that I was reading Colossians and I was reading 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. And the Holy Spirit kind of brought this up and said, what if the potential for foolishness is right here? And this is the lovely gift of Colossians. The lovely gift of Colossians is this, to take our concern that the craziness is out there and remind us that foolishness is right around the corner in our own hearts if we're not careful. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart above all else. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. Scripture, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, is constantly warning us to guard our personhood, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which is why Paul, as a Jewish convert to Christianity writes the lines in Colossians 2.8, and I'm going to read it one last time. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. I want to talk to you just briefly this morning about the possibility of captivity, the origins of captivity, and the freedom from captivity. The first is just the possibility of captivity, kind of what I've been talking about, which is that at some level, we as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, should be the first to consider that foolishness and ideological captivity is something that can happen to us. We could quickly find ourselves outside of orthodox biblical Christianity faster than we think. If we think that could never happen to us, that is actually the first step towards foolishness. The Proverbs are big on this. The Proverbs always say the first step to becoming a fool is to believe you could never be one yourself. 
To think that you'd be excused from foolishness and ideological captivity is your first step into the door of captivity. You've read some of the Proverbs maybe before. It says like Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes, if you've ever heard that. Be not wise in your own eyes. It says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is always right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens. A wise man listens. You see, Paul was steeped in these scriptures. Paul was steeped in these Scripture's thinking, see to it that no one takes you captive, he writes to these Colossians. This church that he had never met, he knew they had the, he didn't, he didn't ever meet them, but he knew they had the propensity towards captivity. And one of the things we have to realize as Christians especially, and I would urge you if you're not a Christian here today to consider the wisdom that comes from Scripture that says, beware and see to it that you don't become taken captive. That, that word, taken captive, um, in, in the Greek, it's a really rare word. Uh, it's not used a lot in scripture. It's not used a lot in ancient Greek literature. And it means to plunder or to take like cargo from a ship, to steal, to steal, to be taken captive. It's a great translation. But it's interesting, N.T. Wright, a great New Testament theologian, uh, he says he believes Paul is making a pun here because the, New the Greek New Testament word for taken captive, it sounds like the same word for synagogue. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, beware of someone taking your devotion, which was the house of the Lord, the synagogue, the place where people worshiped. It's like Paul was making this contemptuous pun with the word synagogue is what N.T. Wright says, saying, beware of developing like an alternate space of your devotion. An alternate area. Think about what the synagogue was if you knew what that, what that is. It was the closest thing we probably have to what we're doing here. Gathering to worship. Being under one roof and worshiping and exalting Yahweh. The Jewish people in their synagogues. That's kind of how this church began. Was kind of in synagogues. Spaces of devotion where your mind, your heart, and your soul is fixed solely on Jesus. And it might be that Paul's making this pun to say, beware of developing this alternate space or being stolen from the true synagogue into a different kind of synagogue. Jewish historians will note that when the Jewish people were in exile, which you read about exile through a lot of the like first and second chronicles, uh, some of those books, uh, as, as those books are ending, the, the captives are being sent away. Daniel is a big book about what uh, was happening to the Jewish people while they're in exile. They were taken captive, literally physically taken captive, the Jewish people. And they were moved into a new space. Jeremiah talks a lot about exile. They were moved into a new space, into a new nation where they knew no one. But Jewish historians are fascinated with this. The Jewish people, they kept their culture, they kept their religious observances, and they kept their orthodoxy. They kept their theology. And actually, in remarkable ways. And historians, they kind of talk about three areas that the Jewish people were able to keep their devotion. The synagogue was one of them. The Sabbath and the scribe. These three areas that helped protect uh, Judaism when it was not in Israel. The synagogue was the protection of devotion. And the Sabbath was this protection of like time over the soul of someone. Um, and so the people kept Sabbath. They kept a synagogue to gather people. And the scribe, a protection of doctrine. 
And I find it interesting because Paul, as a Jew, would be writing this, and if he is using this as a pun, might be saying, look, we as Jewish people were actually physically taken captive at one point. Our houses were plundered, our goods were taken, and we were moved to a foreign land. And yet Yahweh, in his faithfulness, preserved us as resident aliens in a different nation, and we worshiped God as we participated wisely in Babylonian culture. Isn't that an interesting analogy to think, how could you today, how could we today be protecting the way of Jesus Christ in the same fashion? Well, Paul says, beware of re-synagoguing your mind, of re-synagoguing your heart, of re-sabbathing your life, of re-scribing your life. You see, these practices are alive today here at Park Hill. We're here in this kind of synagoguing practice, gathering together, worshiping. The Sabbath to protect our time to say no to the market pressures and the ridiculousness of capitalism that says that we have to work 24-7 and then vacation really, really well and go on these amazing trips. No, what if we had a pace to our lives and we protected our lives in that way? Or like you guys doing this bread thing, I love this book that you have and this practice of getting in the scriptures daily together. Scribe, the scribe was an office in um, the Jewish uh, culture that was protecting the doctrine, that was copying like the book of Isaiah. And the Jewish theology was kept through exile because people were devoted to the word. They were devoted to the prophets. They were devoted to the wisdom literature. They were devoted to the Torah. And they copied it faithfully. And just like you doing your bread journal, man, like writing everything down of going, what is God speaking to me? You are protecting your heart, protecting your mind, protecting your soul. Could it be that the same ways in which God protected his people then, he's inviting us to be protected in that way now? The Babylonian metaphor is wonderful. It's great because they were actually captured, like I said. But they decided even if our bodies, family, and money are held captive, our mind, soul, and heart will be to Yahweh. And so... If you're feeling the pressures of San Diego lifestyle, of California, of America, of the Western world, of the secular culture in which we are surrounded with, may you remember that this is nothing new in God's people. See, God's people have always lived in exile, right? You know this. And so could it be an invitation from this verse to protect our minds by knowing we are going to be assaulted from all angles of all kinds of things. And might we synagogue together? Might we scribe as we read and devote to scriptures? And, and might we also Sabbath together and rest well together? Because we are going to be inundated. Devote your minds to the things of Christ. There is a way to be in exile in Babylon and free in Christ. And I think it's a perfect word to the Colossian church. Because Paul says there's a way to be an exile in Colossae, but be free in Christ. And there's a way to live the way of Jesus in San Diego and be free in Jesus Christ. Devote your mind to the things of Christ so as not to be re-synagogued or re-scribed by the various market and cultural pressures we have. It reminds me of Paul's word to Timothy, his protege, in 1 Timothy 6.20. Oh, Timothy, this is the close to his first letter. Such a cool close. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called 
knowledge. I love that in quotes, by the way. Knowledge. What is falsely called knowledge? Look at this. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Like, it is so possible for you and me to be enticed by knowledge and lose faith. Enticed by philosophy and this podcast and that documentary and this book and you've got to read this and oh, listen to this and hear this and slowly we're being crept away not guarding the deposit that we've been given. Our faith is beautiful because it's not an idea we've constructed. It's news we've been given. And so receive the news and protect the news at all costs. Scripture is filled with these warnings. The possibility of captivity is real. But Paul also tells us the origins of such captivity. Note that in the scriptures he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies or empty deceit according to two things he says, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Human tradition and the elemental spirits of this world. This sets up kind of Paul's general and the New Testament's vision of spiritual warfare, of the human tradition and the elemental spirits of this world. That's a weird phrase, elemental spirits of this world, but it's the spiritual world. In the West, we often ignore the spiritual world. In the West, we are scientific and reasonable but you go to two-thirds of this whole planet, and they very cleanly know that we do not just live in a physical world. It's really only kind of Western, more quote-unquote, and I'll put this in quote, enlightened people that reject what's happening spiritually. But the New Testament, Paul was saturated in this world. You've probably heard this before. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I'll go through this quickly because I feel like Evan and your pastors here at Park Hill I've taught some of this. But the world, the flesh, and the devil kind of sets up the human tradition, the world in the flesh, and the devil, the elemental spirits of this world. Paul's saying there's actually origins of philosophy that come from this battle that every Christian is in. The world is kind of the surrounding cultural ethos, the zeitgeist, you might say, including history, art, idols, sociological frames that we all live in. It's just the surrounding culture that you're living in it can be very, very local and it can be more kind of global, right? The flesh is kind of your personal proclivities towards selfishness and sin, including past trauma, wounds, and struggles. And the devil is the true, real, fallen, angelic being working against the ways and will of God. This is the world Paul lived in, okay? And when he's talking about philosophies and empty deceit, he's saying they're coming from this complicated world, and if you go to the next slide, I think there's this picture of a balanced view of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This comes from Clint Arnold. He's a New Testament theologian at Talbot up in Biola. And he says that oftentimes Christians tend to conflate one of these three instead of looking at a balanced vision of the world. And if you conflate, I think the next slide, just the world, and you just, everything in culture is bad, you ignore the devil and you ignore your own personal responsibility. So everything becomes the devil's fault. Maybe some of y'all grew up in there. I don't mean to trigger you. Okay. Um, everything is the, the, uh, you know, the world's fault. Everything's culture. Everything's bad movies, bad music, bad art. You know? And you've got to ignore that. And if you ignore that, then your mind is protected. Well, that ignores uh, the other two very, very real pieces of our, of our experience. If you overinflate the flesh... It's 
complete and absolute depravity. You are an awful person. Because you are an awful person, awful things happen. And this kind of bad, overweighted theology just on the flesh. And the same with the devil. If there's an overinflation of the devil and an underinflation of the other two, it just becomes all the devil's fault. Hey, the devil's around the corner, the devil's in this, the devil's in the music, the devil's in that. See, Paul is saying, beware that you live in a very complicated world in which the world, the surrounding culture, your flesh, your own personal proclivities and struggles and trauma, and a fallen angelic being called the devil could be warring against your mind and your soul. According to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of this world, Paul is, is quick to say not all philosophy is bad. In fact, I like the NIV says that no one, let no one take captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So not all philosophy and not every idea is bad, but every idea and philosophy must be vetted through scripture, through the spiritual community, through prayer. We'll talk about that, talk actually a lot more about that stuff tonight if you come to the House of Learning. I'd love to see you there. Look at the ways, the world that Paul lived in. When he talks about philosophy, he's using a word that is very common in the New Testament because it was very common in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul is writing. Colossae was situated in kind of a southern region of the Greco-Roman world. But philosophers were actually, um, it was a job. It was a thing you could do. You could hire patrons that would support your philosophical thinking, your writing. You would have students that would come and you'd lecture to those students and teach them these ways. And at the time of the New Testament's writing, this is the description of what a philosopher did from a historian out of the University of Virginia, Robert Louis Wilkin. He writes this, philosophers in that day, they became hucksters, salesmen. Now, while you're reading this, think about YouTube, okay? Salesmen marketing the ideas and beliefs of their respective schools. They offered advice on how to live one's life and deal with personal problems, appealing less to reason and logic than to emotion and feeling. The appeal of the philosopher frequently had less to do with the teaching of his school than with the, how the philosopher dressed, what kinds of success he could promise its adherents, and which philosophy was fashionable and highly regarded in influential circles. Are you thinking about YouTube or Instagram? Some things don't change. Human beings are drawn towards the appearance of wisdom than its actual substance. As Christians, we must guard our minds to know what is wise in Christ and what is just appearing to be it. The appearance of wisdom versus the substance itself, human tradition, that's what it makes me think of. The world and the flesh is full of philosophers and so-called pseudo-experts that are just leading you to their own... Uh, their, their own price. They want to they offer you wisdom, but they want to end up taking something from you, whether it be your money or your mind. Christianity has freedom in its message, which is why another scholar, Hans Borsma, says this about early Christians. Christians often asked rather directly how compatible particular philosophical systems were with the Christian faith. He's talking about the first 250 years of our faith. Christians were keenly aware 
of the potential dangers that philosophies might pose to their deepest held Christian convictions. They were obviously shaped by the Hellenistic world, just like you and I are obviously shaped by this modern world that we live in, this technological world. We are obviously shaped by it, but look at this. They could be very sharply critical of it. And we too find ourselves in a day today where we can be sharply critical while we recognize the influence that this world has on us. Are you aware of the ways in which the ideas that are being thrown at you are forming you? And do you know the origins of these ideas? I mean, just the amount of people I often meet as a pastor who mindlessly receive stuff from their phone without ever consulting scripture, without ever consulting someone older than them who's walked with Jesus longer, who's not just sat and said, what do you think about this? I love this moment I'm in right now where I'm visiting Park Hill. I'm not on staff at Park Hill, so I can freely say this and say this. You have wonderful leaders here. Go ask your leaders, hey, I'm listening to this. Do you think this lines up with scripture? Anytime I say that and I was a pastor, it often sounds self-serving. You know, come ask me and I'll tell you if it's right or wrong. Um, I'm leaving town in a day, so I'm like, Y'all have amazing pastors, and some of you guys have never asked your pastors or your small group leaders or the people who are older and wiser, you've never asked them, is this biblical? Is, is, this, is this full of the Spirit? And what that would do to your mind to protect it, that's what a wise person does. Proverbs says this, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. It's, it's literally that, and I've seen it in my own pastoral ministry. If someone just hangs out with wise people and consults them, they just automatically become that way. And to avoid the elemental spirits of this world and to discern the world in the flesh and the devil, it's going to take communi community and it's going to take a life of prayer. I also am shocked by the number of people that don't pray about what they listen to. I mean, this was convicting for me. When I was going through this and studying a lot of this, I was realizing, how much do I read a book or read an article and then pray about it? I, I, I wasn't doing that. And to change my practice of just reading something and immediately going, Holy Spirit, is that, is that of you? Is this of you? Is this podcast of you? You see, the, the a level of alertness that we're called to do because the same phrase of the elemental spirits of this world, Paul uses it later in verse 20. I told you just have Colossians 2 open. If you skip down to verse 20, he says this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? He's talking, he's in a different context. Your pastors will do a great job of unpacking that, but a different context around Sabbath rules and strange um, fundamentalism that was going on in the church. If you died to those, why are you acting like they're real? Like, this is the entry into the final point, that we have a freedom from captivity. There's the possibility of captivity, the origins coming from the world, the flesh, and the devil, but there is real freedom. Paul says, if you died, vet the ideas that you're listening to as if they are, in his words, chapter 2, verse 8, according to Christ. That which accords to Christ. Don't you love that word? According to Christ. Um, I'm not nearly as good a musician as Evan and Sandy, but I play a little bit, and it makes me think according. 
that word, the etymology of that word, is about harmony. It's about placing one note next to another and hearing resonance or dissonance. And when you place two notes together that belong together, you hear a harmony, you hear a resonance. And Paul's almost saying, set up the ideas that you're receiving from the world and accord them with Christ. Is there dissonance or is there harmony? And like I said, there will be many philosophies and ideas that come through that will actually help us understand more of our faith and be complementary to our faith. But there will be so much out there that will be discordant. How do we know what accords to Christ? We're going to go into that way deeper tonight. But I'll say this. That which accords to Christ, what rings and resonates with Christ, it's to realize this. And if you just have Colossians 2 open, I'll have this slide open. You can underline a few of these verses. But it's to understand that Christianity fundamentally is not an idea or a set of ideas. It's not a philosophy. Christianity, our faith, it's a person in whom, this is the next verse after 2 verse 8, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And... Our faith is a crucifixion and resurrection event, wherein, further down from Colossians 2, he, Jesus Christ, forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was stood against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And look at this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's, an allu that's alluding to the world, the flesh, and the devil, the spiritual warfare that is at work, he disarmed them, and he actually made a public spectacle of them. It's almost mocking them, triumphing over them by the cross. Christianity is not an idea or philosophy, but an event, the resurrection, and a person, Jesus Christ, as the revelation of the triune God. We become Christians as we identify, worship, and proclaim that... <laughs> Not a set of ideas, not a set of philosophies. And so the war in which we are in, pay careful attention, is not good ideas versus bad ideas. It's not Christian sets of ideas versus secular ideas. It's Christ enthroned after a crucifixion destroying the wisdom of this world. That, that's the faith. And so, Christian, here's the good news. The freedom is this. The war has been won. The philosophy of this world, we'll look at this tonight, 1 Corinthians 1, it says God chose what is foolish, a crucifixion, to shame what the world thought was wise, to make that look foolish. And it's a grief of mine that we today are taking the wisdom of this world and trying to make it Christianity. Or trying to take sets of ideas and just baptize them. Baptize these political ideologies and just go, this is what Christianity is. And just capitulate our gospel to these sets of ideas. No, friends, let's be very clear. Christianity is no idea. It's no philosophy. It's the risen Lord Jesus who has come in flesh to show us and to give us new life by his crucifixion power. It is in his death and in his resurrection. That's what we identify with. That's what makes us kingdom citizens. And that's what makes us free to talk about ideas with an open hand. 
I can engage with you and hear about how that documentary and that podcast. Sure, yeah, yeah. While recognizing that we are not talking about my faith. We're talking about an idea. And this idea is good, or maybe it's bad. Maybe it's wise or it's unwise. But I don't feel threatened because Jesus Christ is on a throne. Because Jesus Christ is not dead. He's not a teacher who taught good ideas and died and then passed them down to us. He is the risen Lord who through his crucifixion shapes me in a kind of way that I could not be shaped on my own. This sets us free. The closing metaphor is, is the kingdom of God, friends. The kingdom of God is Jesus' primary. When he came to earth, that's what he talked about the most, right? The kingdom of God. And think about this for yourself as you go. If you're a Christian today, you're a citizen of the kingdom, Scripture says in Ephesians 2, Philippians 3.20. To be a citizen is to be enculturated by a particular place and people group. Who you are, your norms, your habits, your ideas of life, it comes from where you live most of your life. Okay? That's why when I travel, I am painfully a white American anywhere I go. I'm painfully that, and I'm obvious. I could go to Europe or to Asia or to Africa, and it's painfully obvious because of how I act, because of the way I look, because of my habits and my values, that I'm just a dumb American walking around and I only know English. It's just plain and simple. I'm a representative, I'm kind of an ambassador, probably for worse, not for better, in another country. When you and I give our lives to the crucified, risen Savior of Jesus, to the Christianity that's not an idea, but a person and an event, we start to be shaped in a kind of way, don't we? Hang out at Park Hill long enough, we start to be shaped in the way of Jesus. We hang out with people who are like Jesus, we start to be shaped like Jesus, and suddenly, we come into the other kingdoms of this world with different habits, and a different mind, and a different way of thinking, which is to say that Christians live their life in an alternate reality, another space called the kingdom of God, and thereby all of us hold different sets of beliefs and ideas that will never fully match the ideas of the earthly kingdoms and cultures. It would be strange if citizens of the kingdom of God had the exact same cultural expressions as the worldly kingdoms in which we all live. Jesus said it simply in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors. That is a foreign relations idea. We are coming from somewhere else. And so the implications of walking with Jesus are that we are never going to fit fully into the ideological and philosophical constructions of this world. And that's okay. And also, we will probably offend any culture that we're sent into. Just so happens today in this part of the world, we're going to offend individualism, the sexual ethic and greed and many other things. But give it 150 years, we'll offend something else. Take us into another nation, we'll offend some other part of that nation. You go to different parts of this world, the sexual ethic of Christianity does not offend that culture. But the concept of grace does. Whereas the concept of grace is accepted by Americans, but might be rejected by certain Eastern countries. Yeah. So we have freedom because we come from this different kingdom and this different space. I want you to be thinking today, how am I living according to Christ? And how am I thinking according to Christ? If we win, friends, if we win a culture war, if we win a political fight, 
if we win an ideological battle, but we do so in a way that does not represent the ethics of Christ's kingdom, while we may impress certain groups of people on earth, we will be called what scripture deems unfaithful. And my heart for our, us as Christians of this day is that we would live in such freedom and security of the full work of Jesus that we would humbly engage in this world. Oh, I have a long way to go on this, don't you? Might God's spirit help shape us today? I wanna pray for you, and one of your pastors, Greg, is going to actually read a long section of this passage. I think it's perhaps the best way we could finish today is to just sit in this scripture and allow it to shape us and maybe it sets you on a course this week to just read this passage over and over again. And as Greg reads this, I'm going to just start us off by praying for us. And so would you just now close your eyes and bow your heads. And let's ask Jesus, the risen Savior, to speak. Father, we recognize you. Your son, Jesus Christ, seated on the throne right now. Jesus Christ, we worship you. And we acknowledge your mastery, your victory, your perfection, your power. Power that we cannot add to or subtract from. Wow. Power that we can't make look better. No, you are significantly enthroned. May that large vision of Jesus shape us. I pray as this word is read over us, as Greg leads us, that you would literally change our minds. That your spirit would actually remake us. That's not too much to ask for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you so much, Chris. Can we thank Chris for sharing the word with us today? You know, we might come to hear something like that and say, how, how do I actually get that from what I just heard into my head and my heart? How do I apply that? How do I, how do I think through those ideological ideas that, that might be coming at me? And we actually have a, a system in place this year that we're calling bread. This is so that you can actually engage with scripture, engage with prayer, engage with God in a way that will help you take every thought captive to the Lord. What does that end up looking like? Well, we're going to walk you through a, a bread practice this morning. Maybe some of you have been uh, feverishly journaling in your bread journals all month long. Uh, maybe some of you are like, oh yeah, I remember they said something like that a few weeks ago, and I don't think I've done that very well yet. Wherever you're at today, if that idea is new to you or overwhelming, and maybe you just haven't been able to kind of wrap your mind around it, I hope that just by practicing it today together, it'll make it a little bit easier for you to engage in that idea. So um, remember, bread is an acronym, and the B stands for breathe. Now, this isn't just about like saying, all right, I'm going to take a few breaths, um, although I do think that's important. 
But what we're doing in that time is actually just slowing down and remembering what it is we're doing. There's so much, so much coming at us all the time, right? Uh, all those, those ideologies, all those things in our life that keep us very, very distracted or busy or overwhelmed or in pain. And so the breathing exercise is really a chance for us to actually think about breathing that out for a second and breathing in what God has for us. And so we're gonna practice that together. I wanna give you just a couple prompts that you might even think about. Um, think about breathing out some of those ideologies and thoughts um, or addictive behaviors or substances and breathing in wisdom and freedom in Christ. Maybe some of you are, are feeling crushed by anxiety and fear and you wanna breathe that out and breathe in the peace and sovereignty of God. Maybe some of you are feeling different kinds of pain, physical, emotional, or spiritual. You want to breathe that out, and you want to breathe in healing. Maybe some of you are overwhelmed by shame or guilt this morning, and you want to breathe that out and breathe in forgiveness and mercy. Maybe some of you are just coming in here full of doubt. Like, I don't know about this God thing. I don't know about this bread thing. I don't know about these ideas. I don't know any of this stuff. Maybe you just want to breathe out doubt and breathe in faith. And as we prayed earlier, maybe some of you are feeling the weight of grief or even hopelessness today. And you want to breathe out grief and breathe in resurrection and victory. Whatever resonates with you most, let's just take two long, deep breaths together, thinking about those words that you need to breathe in and breathe out. Let's breathe. we're ready to read now, huh? We're going to just read a lot of what we're talking about today, Colossians, starting chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So that's the R. The E is encounter. Basically, if you look back on what we read, use encounter as a word to help you. 
who is the God that you encountered in this passage? How did you relationally connect with him? Maybe relationally even disconnect with him, and why? What did he say, and what did he mean? Go ahead and just take a minute to reflect on that, or you might even wanna write that down if you have a journal here, or you might do what I did earlier today as I was feverishly like listening and enjoying to what Chris was saying. I just put some stuff down in my phone. If that helps you, write down something in your phone, a way that you encountered God in this passage. when you've thought about how you encounter him, think about then how you want to apply that. In other words, if this passage is true, if this relationship could be true, well, what does that mean for me today? How will I be? And what will I do with that? Go ahead and take just a minute to think about, in light of this passage, who will I be and what will I do today? And then finally, we reach the D in bread, devote. And this is really an opportunity for you to, to, to make a, a concrete prayer. And I, I just like to say, it's really beautiful that we have these in journal form because it allows us to write out a, a one or two sentence, very, very simple prayer, just devoting that application to God. So if you had an application just now, you say, all right, Jesus, help me actually do that, or Jesus, help me actually be that, or Jesus, I'm really doubting whether or not I can do the thing that I just thought was such a great idea. Will you help me? Will you, will you help me commit to that? Will you help me be that? Go ahead and write down uh, in your phone or in your journal that one-sentence prayer. God, will you help us to live out what we just devoted to you? And now we continue in our time of devotion by singing to you together with one voice, by taking the cup together as one body, by being with you, being with each other in you, 
and being a church that's known for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.